This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tess. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. Listen, everybody, do not try this at home. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. I know you love that DJ, so I bought us tickets for next week. Got you a coffee, oatmeal cappuccino, right? Your bookshelf. Wow. You've got a really, really great taste. Really great taste. Let's spend the day together. I've got it all planned out. Kindness. Now that's sexy. Try it for yourself with compliments now on Bumble. Our players this week are Tony Hayes, Monique's boyfriend and our victim, Donald Wallace, Monique's son and accomplice, and Monique Johnson, our murderess. Monique Nicole Johnson is originally from Memphis, Tennessee, and we don't know too, too much about her background, but I know that she was married twice. I know that she has two kids. I know that she got a grandchild. And at the time of this story, she was living in an apartment with what I think is her youngest child, and his name is Donald. Now, Monique started working in 2001 at the Shelby County Sheriff's 201 Poplar jail and she was a CEO there. Now we don't have any word from her two ex-husbands or they didn't have make any statements either before or after or during this case but we did hear from two ex-boyfriends and according to one of her ex-boyfriends they said that she was way more than just a pretty face that she actually had a pretty violent streak and a mean streak to her and they described their relationship as just a constant bad episode and he was like listen at the end of the deal with her I am glad that I am here to tell the tale you know what I'm saying? So on, now there was another ex. His name was Kendall Young. And in 2005, Kendall, he made a, he put out a restraining order against Monique because they had a physical altercation outside of a Walgreens in Fox Meadows. Now, according to Kendall, he said that she pushed him out of the car and then she backed up the car, tried to hit him, put the car in reverse, tried to hit him again. This man is running from the car and she is trying to hit him. And then he was like, after that, 
that, I immediately, I went to the police department. I filed a report. And when he gets there, do you know this man found out that there was a police report and a restraining order filed against him from her? And she did it on the previous day. And he's like, what do you mean? Gotta be quicker than that. I'm telling you. And then he gets a phone call. And this phone call says, if you keep messing with my family and you keep messing with Monique, I know where your mother lives in California. Then two days after that, he gets a bullet delivered to him in the mail. Now, she did get arrested for pushing him out of the car and trying to run him over. But she told the police that she was upset because he was trying to break up with her. And it looks like nothing really came from that case. So one day in March of 2005, Monique comes out of her apartment and she sees a security guard talking to her son, Donald. Now, this security guard is Mr. Tony Maurice Hayes. He moonlights at the apartment complex, and this is when he sees Monique for the very first time. And she's like, oh, that's a nice-looking man. He like, oh, that's a nice-looking girl. So they get to talking, and they exchange numbers. Now, this moonlighting security job is just his nighttime. You know, you got to supplement the income. One job is never enough. So in the daytime, Tony's working at the police department as an undercover officer. Did you know, and I just found this out recently, that police officers that moonlight, these moonlighting gigs, like even standing at the grocery store, they get paid pretty good money. That's what I hear. Listen. Tony was born on January 30th, 1969 in Memphis, Tennessee to Miss Ethel B. Hayes. He was one of eight children, and, you know, he comes from this big, loving family. And all of these children, they don't have the same dad, but they all lived with mom. Now, friends describe Tony as jovial, fun to be around. He had a niece, Rachel Hayes, who says that he was more like a big brother to her, and a nephew, Michael Jameson, who described him as a ladies' man. Michael wasn't the only one who described him that way. Now, Tony started his career in the military fighting overseas in the Persian Gulf War, and he was honorably discharged, and he came back to the States. Tony comes home from war, and he decides that he's ready to settle down, or so he thinks. He gets married. He gets divorced. It didn't work. Then he meets Latonya Reed. They met at a Thanksgiving party, and at the time, Tony had just, you know, finished serving. She's a flight attendant. They're head over heels, and on January 1st, 1995, they get married, and they move to Los Angeles, and they have a son, Dominique. Tony's stateside, and he's trying to figure out what else to do with his life, and of course, the easy answer is to continue in public service, so he works towards becoming a police officer. His brother John said that growing up, they didn't see a lot of black men as police officers, but always respected any black cops that they saw because it was like, we definitely know that you had to work harder to get where you were at than a white man would have. Throughout this time, Latanya and Tony are not really seeing eye to eye. According to Latanya, she says Tony likes the idea of being married, but Tony doesn't like the idea of being committed coming home, being a family man. That's not his judge. She was like, you're a better friend and a father than you are a husband, and we just gonna leave it at that. And they actually, like, had a good co-parenting relationship. Right. And Tony remained very active in Dominique's life. Tony ended up moving back to Memphis, and Dominique would come and visit him often on school breaks and spend time with him. But in August of 2003, when Dominique turned eight or nine, his mom just decided, you know, his dad is very good and a boy needs a man. So she sent Dominique to Memphis to live with him permanently. Him and Latanya, they're divorced. They've got this co-parenting thing going on. Tony's advancing in his police career. He goes from undercover cover cop to sergeant. Things are looking great for him. And he's also still heavy on the dating scene. And he ends up meeting a new girl. Her name is, I've seen it. Some people say Raja, some people say Kayla. But you know, some stuff use fake names to protect identity. So one of those. But he ends up 
dating her. She was a TSA agent, so I guess he liked people in the travel field. And they dated for about three years, and they got married in January of 2005. Don't know what it is for him and his January weddings, but um, because it's easy to keep up with the dates if they all in the <laughs> same timeline. He didn't have to keep up with it for long because after. Three months, they were separated. And they remained separated for about a year and four months. Now, Tony was working as a police officer. And of course, when Monique saw him, she was instantly attracted. But one of the things, when they were kicking it off, when they were texting, she made it very clear that she didn't know if she was ready to get back into a relationship yet because she had just had her second divorce. You know what I'm saying? And so she's like, I don't know what to do, but this man's so fine. So she ends up talking to her friend, Tawanda Brewer. And Tawanda is like, girl... You have a history of taking it too fast. You have a history of jumping head in. You also in love next week and then it doesn't work out. Maybe if you think this dude is so fine and you think he got it going on, then maybe you should take it slow. Maybe you should just like get to know him. Learn if you actually like him and not just jump into another long-term relationship. And Monique was like, yeah, that's a good idea, girl. I'm going to think about that. That's a good idea. And then she absolutely started dating Tony and she absolutely fell head over heels. But, you know, she put down some ground rules with him. So she told him, she said, listen, this is going to be a monogamous relationship. I do not want you seeing other people. I want us to be serious about our future. She's like, listen, I've been divorced twice and I'm really not trying to put a third one on my record. Like I'm trying to date with intention. And Tony is like, absolutely. I completely understand. And we're talking about each other's backgrounds. I've been divorced twice as well. And it's it's hard being out here an old bachelor. Like I'm trying to really settle down. I'm trying to have a family. I'm trying to make sure that, you know, everything that I have worked hard for, I can share my life with somebody. And I want to do that with that one person. And she's like, okay, great. We're on the same page. Let's see what happens. Now, remember y'all, they met in March of 2005. And he got married in January of 2005. So he had just gotten, not a divorce, a separation. His wife just moved out. But of course he's going to tell Monique anything that she wanted to hear. Shoot, his ex-wife, his separated wife, she's in Vegas. She's working for TSA. I'm in Memphis. Who going to stop me? Who going to check to make sure my story real? Now, if you ask Raja what happened, her initial statement would be, oh, you know, the job was better out here in Vegas. Like, TSA is really paying me well. They paid me to come out here, so that's why I'm here. But if you press her a little longer, the truth, if you peek behind the curtain, is that Tony was cheating. And she caught him cheating with another woman within the first three months of their marriage. Not only was she being cheated on, but she was being cheated on with Monique. Remember, first wife, LaTanya, knew all of this. They were friends. And LaTanya told Tony, he was like, listen, you need to figure out what you're going to do. Are you going to be with this girl, Monique? Are you going to be with your wife? The choice is yours. It really is. But you need to stop playing games and do something. By December 2005, Tony and Monique have made it official, official. And Tony is gaining her trust. You know, they're establishing their relationship. He pop up on her with some flowers, get a little quality time in with her. They caked up on the phone for two, three hours at a time. And Monique's happy. She got a good job. She got a good man. Her and her son Jordan end up moving into a new house, and Tony's right there with them. I don't think he moved in, but, you know, he's along for the ride. They're going on dates. They're going out of town. Even Tony and Jordan were getting along. They had a nice relationship with each other. And Monique got along with Dominique as well. So it was looking like the perfect blended family situation. But according to Monique, the honeymoon phase did not last long. After a while, Tony 
according to her, is becoming controlling. He's always calling and texting her. Why you ain't answer your phone? What you doing out there? You cheating? Where you at? When you coming home? Who you was with? Monique told all of this to her cousin, and the first thing her cousin says is, yeah, like somebody who's married. So, of course, she puts on her detective hat. And says, why is he doing all of this? And she gets to digging to see what she can find out about this man. Because we all nosy. We got to know what's up. And she finds out that this nigga married. She's like, how many times he said he was divorced? Two. And how many times he said he was married? Two. Mm-mm, girl. Mm-mm. Now, Monique takes this information and decides to confront Tony with it. Like, so what's the deal? Is you married or not? Because sources is telling me that you married, but you telling me you can't you can't be married because nigga you with me. So how the fuck is you married? What's going on? And you know when you're trying to figure out if you still got room to lie or if it's time to give it up. So he he thinking about which way to go, and he's a little hesitant. And finally he's like, yes, technically I am still married. Then he goes on to explain that they've been separated for months, a year and four months, actually. And the only reason he's still legally married is because he ain't have any extra money to pay for the divorce right now, you know? But I'm going to get around to it. But in our heads, we divorce, and that's all that matters. That ain't nothing but a sheet of paper, girl. He continues to reassure Monique that although the law says he belongs to Raja, his heart belongs to her. It's all for you, baby. It's me and you against the world. And with that, Monique decides that she's going to give Tony another chance. I mean, he was smooth. He explained it. He told me what's up. He said that it ain't nothing. And he basically was like, I'm just trying to get my pockets right. Divorces are expensive. Divorces are so expensive. He's like, I'm moonlighting. I'm doing all this extra work because I've got to pay for these bills so that I can finalize the divorce. But my heart, my heart is with you. So she's feeling good, right? She's like, okay. Okay. He's definitely not with this wife of his. He's ready and getting ready for a divorce. And they're starting to have the conversation of what their future is going to look like. And everybody loves having those conversations. So now they're trying to get their relationship back on track. Monique is like, okay, I'm trying to get back right with my man. You know, I'm trying to make sure that I could trust him again. He's been working real hard. And so it seems like everything is going well. But it seems like at night, Tony's phone be ringing and it be ringing, ringing. And each time it's ringing, ringing while we in the bed, he's just like, oh, I can call them back. Oh, it's nothing. It's nobody. It's nothing. It's like two or three o'clock in the morning. Who calling your phone at two or three o'clock in the morning? Who? Answer. Tell me the answer. Answer quick. And so Monique is getting more and more fed up and his phone keeps ringing and Tony is like not answering. So at this point, like, why are you not answering the phone? Because at this point, I want to know who's on the phone. If it's money calling, the answer. If it's your family calling, the answer. If it's some bitch calling, oh, we both going to answer. Like, what is it? But Tony's like, nah, baby, we just going to let it ring. It ain't nobody. It ain't nothing important. Don't worry about it. One night, Monique has had it. This phone, she's done with it. So she decides that she's going to take a little sneak peek. Then she's going to look in the phone. Of course, she sees the number that calls at all hours of the night. Beep, boop, goes to the text messages. Beep, boop. And guess what she sees? A whole bunch of evidence. I mean, hey, babies, what you got going on? Ooh, I've been thinking about you. And it's not just from one woman. There are plenty. She can tell that there's some main ones in there. But there are plenty of women. Good morning, good night. Just wanted to hear your voice. Just wanted to talk to you before you went to sleep. And each one, baby, baby, baby. I guess if they all have the same nickname.
name, then you ain't got to too much worry about getting their names wrong. Call everybody baby. And so at this point, Monique has had it. Ain't nothing like seeing some hardcore evidence that's going to piss you off. So the first thing that comes to her mind is to march her ass right over to Tony's house. She goes to Tony's house. Tony is not there. Tony's 10-year-old son is there. And she goes into that house raising all types of hell. Y'all, she goes into this man's house. She cuts up his clothes. She starts keying his car. She she carves bitch in his car. She goes to the backboard of his bed and carves bitch in the backboard of his bed. Starts cutting up his sheets. Put baby oil in his shoes. I mean, she was doing everything that she could to just destroy his physical property. And do you know his son was there hiding? Like, at first, he didn't even know who the hell just bombarded in the house. So, of course, he's 10. He's hiding. He's calling his dad. His dad is on patrol. And he's like, yo, I think that's Monique. Somebody is over here messing up the house. I think it's Monique. So, he had to get off of work and come to see his house be completely destroyed. And do you know Tony pulls up? And she is still there. And by the time he gets there, she is calm as a cucumber. And she's like, I just want to let you know that we're over. We're done. I can't do this anymore. And he's like, oh, we're over. We're done. No, no, no. We are over. I could have you arrested. You should be arrested for what you did. You just vandalized my entire property. I could press charges. You could lose your job. You really need to just get out of here because why would you even do that to my house? Like, you know that this is a crime. Why would you even do this? He did file a report with the police office, with the police department because of this. It was filed on May 19, 2006. But he didn't press any charges. He just wanted things to be on the record. You know, it's his job. He knows what the paperwork looks like. And then it seemed like things were getting better. You know how it is. You break up, things are horrible. Then you make up and we're all lovey-dovey, happy to be with each other again. But Monique constantly was on Tony. I know you cheating. I know you cheating. Who you cheating with this week? And Tony was like, no, I ain't. No, I ain't. Thought you got me on the counter. It wasn't me. So it's Sunday, September 3rd, 2006. It's a day before Labor Day and Monique is making plans to spend the night at Tony's house. And Tony goes to work on this day. Nice day on the job. He arrests the burglar. He's fighting crime. He gets off work on Sunday, has dinner at the house, getting in that quality family time, you know? Goes out, he comes back, he leaves again. Now, they rest that night. They wake up the next day. It's a Labor Day. Tony and his son have plans to go hang out with his family at the family cookout. Supposed to head up to his mama house, get a plate, make sure you bring me one too. And this morning, Monique is in the bathroom, getting dressed, getting ready to go home because, you know, him and his son have their day planned. You know, she's going to go on about her day. Then his phone starts vibrating. Who texting us? She pick up his phone. She see a message from a woman named Kim Chapman saying, hey, babe, you want to go for a job? She's over it because she done had it the last time and she let him have it again. So she take his phone. She kisses him goodbye. And she gets in her car and leaves. She ends up driving to her house. But as she's driving, she calls this number of this girl who is calling him baby. So she dials it. The phone rings. And the girl picks up. Hey, baby. Monique says, this ain't baby. This baby's girlfriend. That would be so mean. Now, she looking at her rearview mirror. And she see Tony Carr behind her following her. Because you leave with my phone. You left with my fucking phone. The fuck you think you doing? You thought you was slick? I'm a whole ass police officer out here. So And I know what's in that phone. Keep it close. You thought I wasn't going to know what's missing? Now, he's riding so close on the back of her that he's almost ramming her. Minutes later, Monique and Tony pull up to her house. And before she can really do anything, she says Tony's already at her 
her car door, trying to open it. He's telling her, get out the fucking car. Let's talk. Come on. You, like, tripping. Give me my fucking phone. You, you doing a lot right now. Sick of the back and forth. And Monique's like, uh-uh, nigga. It ain't nothing to talk about. I'm done. I'm done with you and your cheating ass. So, eventually, Monique opens the car door because Tony ain't leaving. And when she did, Tony, according to her, immediately lunges at her and grabs her by the arm. And basically, Monique says at this point, she's being assaulted by Tony while she's still sitting in the car. That's when she reaches over and sees that he left his gun in the passenger seat. The last time he was in the car, she grabs it and she shoots Tony a total of six times. She looks and Tony's just staring back at her, not saying anything. And she realizes this nigga dead. So after this, she kind of panics. Like, oh my goodness, my police officer boyfriend is dead. What am I going to do? And she already knows that Tony is well known. He is not just some low ranking police officer. He has, you know, a little bit of clout in the force. She wasn't sure what to do, but she knew that her son was in the house. Her son's name is Jordan. And she was like, Jordan, Jordan, come out here. I need your help. And she's like, okay, here's going to be the plan. I need to take Tony. Tony is dead. Look at Tony. Tony's dead. Jordan, her son is 16 years old. And now Jordan, I'm not going to sit here and act. Jordan has a rap sheet. Like he's already got a couple of burglary charges up against him. And so she's like, Jordan, we need to get this body. We need to get rid of it. So Jordan helps hoist his body up into Tony's Lexus, the trunk of his own car. And Tony, he was really proud of his Lexus. He had a license plate that said Lex up on it. And he, you know, be like when they get nice cars. So they put him in the trunk of his own car and she drives away and parks his car in some random apartment complex in East Memphis. When she did park the car, she reverse parked the car because she knew the car from the front just looks like any other car. But the license plate, that's a customized plate. That is easy to find. And she abandons the car with his body in the trunk. Now, after they were finished, she went out to eat. She went to TGI Fridays. And then she went to go see snakes on a plane. And then she goes back to her home and she cleans up the entire house. I mean, spick and span. Back at Tony's house, Dominique, his son, is confused because where's my dad? Like, he may be a player and he crush a lot. He may have to work, but one thing he does is communicate. And one thing he won't do is not answer the phone for Dominique or not be there when he said that he's going to be there for his son. That was one of the main things that were so important in his life. Now, Dominique is like, okay, dad is supposed to pick me up. This is weird. Call him. He don't pick up. Cool. Call him. He don't pick up. Okay. That's weird. And then he ends up calling his mom because he's like, ma, dad was supposed to come pick me up and he never did. And we supposed to go to grandma's house to go to a cookout for Labor Day. And I haven't heard from him at all. So at this point, she may be ex-wife, but she's definitely best friend, co-parent. It was like, something ain't right here. Because I know your habits. Like, you know if your baby daddy ain't shit. And you know if your baby daddy is prone to not picking up your kid. But you also know if your baby daddy is one that is going to pick up your kids. You know what I'm saying? And so she immediately was like, something's not right. Let's start calling around. Let's see where he is. Because he would not just leave you high and dry. Latanya, of course, calls his phone herself. No answer. And then she's like, okay, well, let me call his mama because they were supposed to go to his mom for the cookout. Go to Ethel. Miss Ethel is his mom and says, hey, well, if they haven't heard from him and he's not at work, maybe just have somebody ride by and see if they just see anything. And if nothing else comes of it, let's file a missing persons report. So meanwhile, back in California, Latanya starts her own preliminary investigation. And of course, her and Tony talk. So she knows who Monique is. And, you know, her son 
son been around her, so she for sure know who Monique is. She also know that Tony is still married to Raja, and he ain't all the way done fucking around with her. And they've had conversations that he either needs to be done with Raja or done with Monique, but he can't keep playing these two women. Don't know how she got the number, but she ends up calling Monique, and she's like, you heard from Tony today? And Monique said, he probably on a date. She pissed, okay? She still she still ain't calmed down. Hey, Why yeah. are you even answering the phone with, for me with that type of energy? I'm calling to ask where your man is. And why? Why are you worried about where my man is? He probably on a date, that nigga lying to cheat, and he probably still fucking you too, because he fucking everybody else. And I know Latanya got off the phone like, okay. Dominique's grandma comes to pick him up, and the two of them, with Latanya on the phone, go to the police department, and they file a missing persons report. And at first, Miss Ethel and even Latanya are suspecting that he's probably had a bad run with one of these people who he's arrested or came into, you know, he's an undercover officer, he's a sergeant. It's plenty of people who could wish ill will on him, right? And his work buddies are trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. They're like, you know, Tony's grown. He really could be with another woman or something. You know, we, let's not think the worst. Now, was it odd that his son was left with nobody to watch him and stood up for a day? Sure, that's not in Tony's character, you know? So, of course, he was off on Monday for Labor Day, right? Turns out he has Mondays and Tuesdays off every week. So he's already got Monday, Tuesday off, and he's trying to have a long holiday. He goes ahead and he asks for Wednesday off, too. So Tony don't got to report to work until Thursday. He already has Monday and Tuesday off. And, you know, it's already, he's not usually supposed to show up to work on Wednesday, but in anticipation of the holiday weekend, he went ahead and asked for Wednesday off too. So he wasn't required to port to work until Thursday. So all in this meantime, they are holding out hope that Tony's going to show up. They talked to Monique first. She's the current girlfriend. She should know the most about him and his whereabouts. So they go and they talk to her and her demeanor is off. Like she doesn't seem too worried. She's very matter-of-fact on the details. We're telling her we ain't seen or heard from your boyfriend in a couple of days, and she don't seem too concerned about it. She says that she last saw him on Labor Day when they were together, and everything was fine. Their relationship was fine. No complaints. Now, when the police talked to her, she maintained eye contact with them during most of the conversation, and the police are like, this is off. But... They leave her. They don't have any real reason to suspect her at this point. And they just call us if you remember anything else that we should know. All right, cool. I'll see y'all later. So at this time, the police, they do a basic search outside the areas of Tony's house. They realize they don't know where his Lexus at. His house don't got no signs of forced entry. If his Lexus not here, maybe he not here, you know? Outside of that, the only other thing they found was some cut-up male clothing in a trash can outside. And Lieutenant Colonel Caroline Mason says, quote, that let me know that there was an angry woman somewhere that had cut up those clothes. Police dig a little bit, and that's when they realize, oh, Tony is still married to Raha, who's working as a TSA in Vegas. Maybe she did it. They go to check the work logs and the flight records, and it's not adding up. She showed up to work. It wasn't her. Now, this is when she tells the police, oh, you know, me and Tony left on good terms, as good as they can be. Nigga can't keep his dick in his pants, but outside of that, we ain't had no issues. I ain't trying to kill a nigga. And her story checked out. So here it is. It's Thursday. Tony should be at work. It's September 7th and they do roll call. He's not there. The first thing they do is they're like, okay, we gave Tony time to go off and do whatever he wanted to do. We gave him time to disappear, but showing up for work, now we know that something is for real wrong. And they say, okay, we're going to investigate a little bit more. And they subpoena Tony's phone records and they 
go and get a warrant to search the inside of his house. They also send out a citywide alert looking for Tony. So if you guys get a sense of the timeline, he was last seen Sunday. He was supposed to pick up his son on Monday, which was Labor Day. And now here it is Thursday and we are at a full blown investigation. Now, Sergeant Vincent Higgins remembers Tony as a fine officer, a fine recruit, and he was well respected by his law enforcement community. And when they're thinking about what could have possibly happened to Tony, their first thought is, well, he's a police officer. If you're a police officer, especially if you're a plainclothes police officer, you run a lot of risk because people will try to get back at you, especially in Memphis. It's not a clean cut type of city. You know, it's a rough place and people will try to get back at you, especially if you're an officer for the things that you've done to them, to their family, to their gang members. You never know what could have happened. The last day that he was at work, him and his partner... They arrested a dude for burglary. They confiscated the knife. So how do we know that that wasn't somebody in retaliation to what he did? But when they look into it, turns out the dude that he arrested and Tony, they actually ended things on a good note. And then two days passed after the full-blown investigation started. And Monique did something very interesting. She never called up there to see about the investigation, to get an update, to see if there was type of status on the missing person case. This is a police officer, so I know y'all looking. By Thursday afternoon, detectives ended up back at Monique's house, and they were like, all right, Monique, let me get you come down to the station. We're really kicking this thing into high gear. Let me just get a formal statement from you. In the interrogation, the police are trying all the tactics that they have. They are begging Monique. They are asking her multiple questions. They're, if you Do you know anything, anything at all that could help us with this investigation? And Monique is saying that she doesn't, but all of a sudden, like, her attitude changes, and she goes from being very stern and stoic to kind of defensive. And the police are like, why are you on defense, girl? That's really suspicious because if you weren't, if nothing, if you didn't do anything, you wouldn't be defensive, right? Now, Monique, she was like, okay, yes, I know about Tony's death, but it wasn't me. My son, he shot Tony. Okay, no, it wasn't my son. It was me. I shot him. And they're like, you did? And he, she's like, yes. Now, her story's already changed. And police are like, okay, we clearly can't take her at face value. So they start going through Tony's cell phone records. They're going through his records. They're going through his text messages. And they see that at 7 a.m. on the day of the murder, on Monday, he gets that text message from Kim. Hey, babe, you want to go for a jog? And they're like, okay, well, let's bring Kim on down. So Kim comes down so they can answer some questions. Man, was the last time that you talked to Tony? She's like, uh. Um, it's probably been about since Monday. They're like, ma'am, what is your relationship with Tony? She's like, well, we casually date. Like, we see each other. We're definitely, I would consider us dating. I mean, we're not boyfriend, girlfriend, but we're definitely being, he's definitely courting me. I would consider that courting. And they were like, okay, well, ma'am, do you know that Tony is dead? And she's like, what? They said that she seemed very surprised. And it was even more shocking because she spoke to him that Monday and she asked him if he wanted to go for a jog with her. And then she said that she sent the text message. A little bit of time had passed. She got a phone call from his phone. And when she answered, it wasn't him. It was some other woman, some woman named Monique. And the call didn't actually drop. Monique kind of dropped the phone. And Tony was screaming at Monique. I get this at this point, Monique and Tony had caught up with each other. And she said she could hear Tony screaming in the background and Monique is yelling at Tony, you lying motherfucker, I'm so sick of you, I can't stand you, I've had enough of this, I've had enough of this bullshit. You's no good heartbreaker, you's a liar, and you a cheat. 
So the police go back to Monique and they confront her with this information. The first thing that Lieutenant Colonel Mason notices is that Monique's demeanor has changed a lot from their previous conversations. She's brought into the police station, she's questioned further, and they ask her about the inconsistencies in her story, because it's weird at this point. And now we want to know what, you, what your alibi is. Where were you when Tony went missing? Now, at this time, Monique is texting her son, get rid of the guns, and he's stashing them away along with Tony's bulletproof vest that they took out of the trunk of Tony's car. At the same time, other detectives are digging into Tony and Monique's history, and they see that Tony filed a police report on Monique talking about her vandalizing all his stuff. According to the report, the clothes were cut up in a very specific way, and this is the same way that they found the clothes cut up in the trash can outside of Tony's house. And when they look at who did the vandalizing on the report, it's... It's Monique. So who did the fucking up of the clothes? Monique. So Lieutenant Mason is describing this interrogation and she says, we've cleared out all of our leads except Monique. She's still sitting there and she says, I looked at her and I said, Monique, tell me where Tony Hayes is so his mother and his son can have some closure. And she looks at me and she says, I'll take you to him. Now, she says that she can't tell them exactly where it is, but they drive her there. She can point it out. So they put her in the back of the police car, and with three detectives, Monique guides them to Tony's abandoned 1999 Lexus LX300. Now, she's parked this at this random apartment complex on the east side of Memphis, and she's backed it in so nobody can see his obvious license plate. She's like, he's in the trunk. So the cops, they go to the trunk, they open it, and they find what they think to be Tony. Now, they can't be sure because it's the middle of the summer. He's been in trunk for four days. If it's hot outside, it's hotter in the fucking car. So his body got so badly decomposed that he was unrecognizable. The cops say that his face was literally melting off, eyes bulging out like he is looking sick and twisted at this point. The smell of his body was so bad that as she's waiting in the car, she turns on the air to try and breeze out the smell. Now, Monique's confessed, but the police still think that her version of the story is a little inconsistent. When the police are questioning her son, Donald, he says that the shooting takes place in the master bedroom of the house. He says he's in his room. He hears pop, 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 pop. Runs upstairs, Ma, what happened? And she's like, ah, oh, shit, baby, help me. Help me clean this up. I done, I done fucked up and I need your help. And the cops are like, okay, well, let's, let's run this back because we've been through the house. And that bathroom didn't look like a crime scene. Where are the bullet holes? Where was the blood? So Donald ends up telling them, well, the bullet holes were in the bathroom door, which we had to get rid of because there were bullet holes in it. So we stole a door from a house down the street that was being built and we we painted it to match the house. And the police are going back and are looking at the photos. And it's like these um, French doors. So they touch each other, right? One side, the left side and the right side. And the left side looks like it's been painted and like it's like an off-white now. And the right side is like a white-white. And it was like, well, I'll be damned. These are not the same set of doors. They also see like a little mop bucket to the side. And they're like, this bitch done cleaned up this crime scene. That's why we ain't noticed nothing up here. Now, they're pushing Donald for more information. They're like, listen, we're already going to charge you. You've got accessory after the fact. Don't make this worse by not corroborating. 
tell us everything else you got to tell us. And that's when Donald's like, listen, I hid the guns in these dumpsters over at Glendale's apartment on Hickory Hill. I'll show you that. And, you know, that's all I know. That's all I got. So they go and they recover the gun. And it was actually his personal weapon, not his service weapon. And they also recover the bulletproof vest. And this whole time, the evidence is building against Monique. They got an autopsy that shows that Tony was shot six times. The autopsy shows that Tony was shot five times in the back and one fatal shot to the head that was done in a downward trajectory as if she was standing over him. They also find out that the gun used was Tony's service weapon, not some random gun that Monique says was just already in the car. After this, they take Monique back to the station and they're like, okay, again, your story is not lining up because now you and your son are contradicting each other. So tell me what happened so Monique changes her story yet again she's like okay so here's what really happened we did start arguing in the garage and then I got scared so I ran to the master bedroom I get to the master bedroom Tony's chasing me we arguing I'm trying to get away from him I get to the bathroom he gets to the bathroom I see my gun I had to shoot to save myself I didn't know what was going to happen. So all of this investigation that's going on, the let's talk to you, Monique, let's talk to the son, take us to the weapon, take us to the body. All of this is September 7th. And they have finally recovered Tony's body. They finally caught his killer and they're ready to move forward in the case. So all of this, like Taz said, happened on September 7th and she was arrested technically on September 8th, but it was like one, two o'clock in the morning. She was arrested and she was charged with murder. Now, remember, she worked in the jail. She was a CO at the local Shelby County Jail. So they had to figure out where they were going to put her because not the CO coming in, being an inmate, that could be potentially dangerous for her, right? So she was at the police station for a while until they figured out what they were going to do with her. And so then they found a small jail that was in the suburbs that they were able to put her in just to keep her out of the jail that she was actually working at because now she was actual property of the state. She stands in front of a judge and of course she says that she's not guilty. And they were like, okay, well, you absolutely have the right to a trial, but we're going to give you a $1 million bond. Now, Donald, he also was arrested and he was charged with accessory after the fact. And he was given a bond of $250,000. And because of that, because of the arrest, you know, he also had those pending charges. There were eight aggravated robbery charges. And so because of that, he had an additional $100,000 on his bail. Now, apparently he was involved in a gang. It was this group called Vice Lords and it was a series of robberies and they were victimizing Hispanic people in September of 2005. And that is where that string of burglaries came in. Now, of course, this is kind of scandalous, right? Like a CO is arrested for murder. Did no one see the signs? Did no one know about her check your past? She was arrested for that vandalism. She wasn't charged or anything like that. But, you know, she got arrested. And basically everybody that worked at the jail said that they didn't really know too much about her violent streak. They didn't know too much about her check your past. She didn't really talk about her personal life like that. If we knew that she had a violent streak, of course, we would get her some type of help. We would get her some type of resources. She wouldn't work here. But that's not something that we were aware of. 
Now, when she was in this little suburban jail, one of the things that Monique did was complain about the TV banquet dinners that they gave. She said they was either freezing, they had an ice cube in the middle, or they were too hot and they were burnt. So either way, you were eating a cardboard, which is very ironic because weren't you just serving up cardboard to everybody else? But now you get a taste of it. But, you know, I think it's I mean, it's not the same jailhouse, but still, I mean, you're not. Why are you feeding those people banquet TV dinners and thinking that's okay? I grew up on banquet TV dinners because <laughs> she sat there on that TV saying, they gave us banquet meals. I was like, girl, I just be happy. My mama gave me the one with the brownie in it. Now, Donald, he decided that he was going to go ahead and plead guilty to being an accessory after the fact. And he was still a minor. Remember, he was 16 when this happened. And they placed him in the juvenile judicial diversion program until January of 2011. Basically, it's if he stays out of trouble, if he keeps his nose clean, his record will be cleared and at least as a minor he hadn't gotten into any trouble since he was only he was in jail for five months and then he was released into that program where he stayed until 2011 and as for his mom she got ready to gather up her lawyers and take that shit to trial bitch take that shit to trial bitch take that shit to trial bitch take that shit to trial streaming october 6th on paramount plus first place i learned about death was a pet cemetery Dead things buried in that land would come back. There's something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery, Bloodlines, Rated R, streaming only on Paramount Plus. I know you love that DJ, so I bought us tickets for next week. Next week. Got you a coffee, oatmeal cappuccino, right? Your bookshelf, wow. You've got a really, really great taste. Really great taste. Let's spend the day together. I've got it all planned out. Kindness, now that's sexy. Try it for yourself with compliments. Now on Bumble. Instacart helps you get beer and wine delivered in as fast as an hour. So, whether you need to fill the cooler for tailgate season or fill your glass for Pinot by the fire season, you can save time by getting fall sips delivered in just a few clicks. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Must be 21 or over for alcohol delivery where available. Instacart. Add life to cart. Monique goes to trial on February of 2018, and the courtroom is packed with police officers, citizens, family, and ex-wives. Now, the defense has a theory that Tony was an abuser. He had caused Monique to act out of fear for her life. Her defense attorney, Arthur Horn, told the jurors in an opening statement, he sat a chair in front of the jurors, and he starts off, My name is Monique Johnson. I am a mother of two and a grandmother of one. I'm a victim of domestic abuse. I shot him defending myself, and for the first time, I stood up to him. I was scared, and I did not know what to do. This lawyer was acting. Let me tell you something. This lawyer, he... He was reminiscent on his TV One debut. 
He said that this case was like the kickoff to his career. He said this opening, closing argument was his eight-mile moment, and he crushed it. So Monique takes a stand, and she testifies that, of course, she got jealous of the women in Tony's life and how he would cheat on her. And she said that she was growing tired of him and his lies and his abuse, and she was thinking about joining the Army just to get away from him. She said not only was Tony a serial cheater and abusive towards her, but he was also sexually abusive and even infected her with herpes. She described her phone call with Kim on the day of the murder and said that Kim answered the phone, hi, baby, and she said, this ain't baby, this baby's girlfriend. And she's like, I was upset, but I didn't raise my voice. And then she told Tony, this is the last straw. I'm not going to deal with you anymore. I'm not going to do it. She says, she tells the jurors, I told him to leave. And he said that he wasn't going anywhere. He shoved me and I saw the gun and I pointed it at him and I was shaking. And I said, would you please leave? And he said, you ain't going to shoot me. And I told him and he turned his back and he took one more step towards me. And that's when I started shooting. She said, I thought he was going to beat my ass. She said, I just kept pulling the trigger. She says that she tried to walk away. She tried to leave, but Tony followed her. And once they got to the house, he was just beating on her in the garage, and she had to defend herself. She said, his eyes were open, and I called his name, but he didn't say anything. I was afraid to call the police and tell them that I had shot a Memphis police officer. I didn't know what they were going to do to me. That's when she says that she asked her son for help to put his body in the trunk of his own Lexus. And then they went out to eat into the movies after leaving the car in the apartment complex. Her attorney asked her, did you want to kill Tony? And she breaks down and cries and says, no, I didn't. Now, they also bring family members of Monique to testify on her behalf. And her cousin speaks and says that she's heard of Tony being abusive towards Monique. As a matter of fact, she's seen finger marks around Monique's neck and bruises on her legs. And she told her to leave that relationship if she was getting hurt. And her son also testifies to the same thing, saying his mom had shared with him that Tony was getting abusive and he's witnessed some things. Now, the prosecutor had their own theory. They said that Monique is no victim. Instead, she is an emotionally unstable woman with a jealous streak and a hot temper who plotted to murder Tony as revenge for him cheating on her. Now, there was also a source, and I only saw it once, so I don't know if it's true, but in this one source that I read, they said that he had also filed a restraining order against her, and she was upset about that. And of course, she was there that week but we've seen people all the time have a restraining order and go back to the person that they have the restraining order against. Now, the assistant district attorney, General Karen Cook, she said, all this is bullshit. Monique planned to kill Tony. She said, quote, she still kept on shooting. She stuffed him in a trunk and she backed it up to a dumpster. That's not passion. No, that's not passion. I'm sorry. That's not scared. They said that if there was abuse, why is it that there is no record of abuse from Monique? calling the police, writing up something against Tony. Why is there so many records from abuse, not just from Tony, but we can pull records of abuse from former boyfriends as well. Now, she is up there for cross-examination, and they're like, you scratch words into his card. And she's like, yes, ma'am. And everybody's like, that just don't sound like you scared.
scared, you know? That don't sound like somebody that's terrified. You scratched up my car. And I just feel. Tell me something. Two things can be true at the same time. Very. Yes, right. He can be abusive and she can be abusive. Y'all know how the story go. Harpo beat on Sophia. Then Sophia beat on Harpo. Then Harpo beat on Sophia. Some more, like. Harpo hit Sophia one time. That's how the story go. Harpo beat Sophia. Then Sophia beat on Harpo. Then Harpo beat on Sophia. Some more. He got kicked by a mule. So it, it it don't have to be a one-way street. It could be that they was both toxic. They both did some shitty things to each other, and they both should have left each other alone. Also, whether at trial, the prosecutor are like, she's this so upstanding person. You're trying to say, oh, she took us to the body. But what y'all failed to realize is she changed her story three, four times. She said did it. She said she did it. She said it happened in the garage. She said it happened in the uh, bathroom. What happened? She's changed her story so much. We can't even keep up right now. What story are we even telling? So the prosecutor also tell the medical examiner the medical name is Karen Chancellor and Karen goes to the stage and she describes Tony's body as being riddled with gunshot wounds before it was stuffed into the trunk that after doing the examination the six shots were not in a defensive manner like it wasn't like he was shot from the front while he was attacking all the shots were behind him they were in his back and the last shot was in his head in that downward trajectory but you know defense is still coming and ready to fight they have a psychologist come on stand and the psychologist is like listen there's no way that she could have first degree murder because she was in a different state of mind in that time maybe we should go for temporary insanity or something like that and she she wasn't planning to kill him that day she had plans to go with her son out to to go to the movie she had plans to be with her son and and spend that Labor Day with her family. Murder wasn't on her to-do list that day. Now, closing arguments, the prosecutor, they were like, listen, jury, I need you to consider the source. Monique is a liar. From the beginning, she lied. She's clearly still lying. All of the evidence is showing that she's lying. The things that we have said prove to you that this woman is a habitual liar. And that is really the long and the short of it. The defense, he went up there and baby... When I tell you if there was a Tony Award for best lawyer and not from Chicago, listen, give them the old razzle dazzle because how can the jury see when there is glitter in their eyes? You know what I'm saying? He said that Monique is the real victim here. He said that Monique didn't report the death because Monique already knew the brotherhood that is the police force. And she didn't want to stand up against this brotherhood of the police force. Next thing you know, her life would be in danger after taking a life to defend her own. Later on, people were like, listen, that lawyer's opening and closing statements was nothing short of a performance. And that was really what most people described it as, a performance. One thing that I found really interesting about this entire thing is that the jury never saw pictures from the crime scene. My understanding is that it wasn't even the prosecutor or the defense. It was the judge that was like, no, you don't really need to upset the jury by having them see that. Which is weird. Do you find that weird? Well, his reasoning was that the state that his body in 
was not from the murder. It was from him sitting in that car all the time. So he was like, he didn't feel it was fair for them to use those photos because it kind of, it, it looks worse than what was actually done. And so he was like, it doesn't necessarily speak to the crime that it was. It more so speaks to his car sat in a body for four days in the heat and kind of melted as it decomposed. Right. But also that's a part of the crime. A part of the crime is not just the fact that he's dead. It's the fact that his body was moved. I, I get that, but I think he's more so on, once you see those pictures, you think, oh my God, somebody, like, you know, you think back to Emmett Till, see his face so y'all can see, that's what they did to him. Like, he looked like that before he died as he was killed, and it would probably would have confused the jurors in his own sense. I think it's room for an appeal on the defense, I mean, on the prosecution state side, though. Yeah. So, closing arguments ended on February 15th, and the jury consisted of seven women and five men. They deliberated for five hours and they came back a little after 5 p.m. And this jury, y'all, they found her guilty. Don't get too excited. They found her guilty not of murder. They found her guilty of a lesser charge. They found her guilty of reckless homicide. Now, under Tennessee law, reckless homicide refers to a person who acts recklessly with respect to circumstances surrounding the conduct or the result of the conduct when the person is aware of but consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk basically like she did it but she wasn't she was reckless not because she meant to kill him not because she premeditated not because she was angry and when this came out i mean everybody was in shock the prosecutors couldn't believe it. Like, they were like, this is the most unjust thing I have ever heard in my entire life. The family was, could not believe what they were hearing. The police officers that just knew that they were going to see justice, they didn't see anything for their friend. And I can't even imagine how she felt. Her lawyer felt like this was the moment of his career, but everyone else just could not believe how light of a charge she was found guilty of. When, when Mariah and I were researching this show, we were together and we're listening to them present all the evidence and then we hear that verdict and we said how the fuck did she get away with this one because i still don't get it because she bright she is passing for sure and i think that played a huge absolutely. huge role in it absolutely it did that is the only way i was like it's because she bright skin sentencing took place on march 27th by the time she was sentencing she had reached 19 months and she was able to speak at her sentencing where she said i'm very remorseful for what happened i'm sorry it happened like it did now if she'd have got convicted for first degree murder she'd have been looking at life but now she's facing two to four years judge paula shakan gave her credit for the time served and suspended her four-year sentence to four years probation and she got to go home after the trial after sentencing now her terms of probation were that she one must get counseling from a psychiatrist two she's got to do 150 hours of community service three you need to take a program on moral behavior and four you need to undergo random drug screenings and this all needs to happen within 60 days that means she needs to do three two and a half hours of community service every single day or she can just do it every weekend she, she got kids okay monique has gotten away with murder they have let her out they have let her be free just these simple terms that she just couldn't seem to keep up with and did you know what it is that caused her to violate her probation and put her ass back in jail was it the drug screening nope was it the community service nope 
Was it the, I don't know, did she have a weapon when she wasn't supposed to? Nope. Oh my goodness, friend, what was it? She did not go and see that psychiatrist that she was supposed to see within those 60 days and violated her probation. And I know while she was out, she was trying to apply for jobs and stuff and couldn't get one. And when they revoked her probation, she was shocked. She was like, are y'all really sending me to jail? Like, girl, you should have been shocked when you got away with it the first time. Now she has to serve out the rest of her four-year sentence. Now when Miss Ethel Hayes, Tony's mother, found out that Monique had to go back to jail, she was happy to hear it. But in her mind, she should have never been let out in the first place. She said she killed him and said it was self-defense. It's not. Tony would never do anything to anybody. We knew it wasn't true because we know Tony. People who didn't know him would believe what she says, but we know better. God is going to take care of her. She knows what she did and will have to give an account of what she did. She got to can't get away with it. God is in control of whatever happens. And we just pray every day. And ask the Lord to help us deal with it. Miss Ethel continued to tell people that Tony didn't even be his own child. So why would he lay his hands on this woman? Who don't got to be tied down to? Because Tony want to be tied down anyways. On November 10th of 2008, Monique had a parole hearing. And she was denied for parole. And they was like, nah, homegirl, go ahead and finish it out. You almost there. So then her next possible date of release was August 21st of 2009. She was released in August and has seemed to be living a private life ever since her release. And that is the story of Monique Johnson. Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. All right, y'all, it's time for... I didn't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. She got away with it, didn't it? Yeah, she did. But I didn't do it, but if I did, y'all got to stop involving y'all kids and y'all shit. Oh, my God cut it out i mean yeah you do and also like your son was already on a downward trajectory he already had owned guns of his own he was already involved in gang violence baby you need to make sure you had your eyes on your kid instead of worrying about that man i ain't do it but if i did listen we've said plenty of times on this podcast if you're unhappy get a divorce like it's not if it's something that you cannot work out, murder is not the answer. Divorce them before you end up in a bad situation. There's a part two to that. When you do get a divorce, that don't mean jump into the next relationship. That means take your time, make sure that you are right, get yourself together, and then you can start dating again. No one is telling you to be single forever, but you got to figure out you. And if you date somebody and they are even separated from their wife, husband, let them divorce papers be final and then give a couple months. A year would be great after that. I ain't do it, but if I did, I probably would have got my story right the first time. The fact that her story changed that many times and she still got away with it is crazy. And the fact that the science does not add up. She ain't no itty bitty thing. But there's shots coming from above, which means he's down, you're up. Right. And they can tell you bullet trajectories. And they're saying this in the court. And you still are swayed to believe self-defense. Make it make sense. That's who I want as my lawyer. If we learned anything else. What's this man's name? Arthur. Hold on. One call. That's all. Arthur Thorne. You can check out his Instagram, artthorne70. Listen, this man, the law officers of Arthur Thorne, clearly know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. I want to know what his record is now. Because I know he was smelling himself after this case. Oh boy. Because it really has nothing to do with her. It is all about him. Call Arthur. <laughs> he can get you off. All right, Arthur. We keep shouting you out. You're going to have to start 
start paying us. Um, I didn't do it, but if I did, I just don't understand. If you know the person is cheating, why are you looking in the phone for further confirmation? You know he a cheater. You know he's been cheating. You know it. And why you leave with his phone anyways? You could have walked out, called her, heard the notice, ain't baby, this is baby's girlfriend, threw the phone, broke the phone, and then you could have been on your way and you still wouldn't have got away with murder. And you would have felt good because you would have broke something. You just need to stop damaging people's property already. But let's say that you needed to break something, okay? Let's say your crazy brain was peaked. You can do that outside and not kill anybody. All right, parole or no parole. Girl, you only had four years. Just do the damn four years. You already got the easy side of the deal. <laughs> sunny side of the street. Do the sunny, sunny side of the street. All right, that was easy. Let's read some reviews. You can leave us a review literally anywhere, okay? Go and try and do it wherever. If you can't do it one place, try another place. If you can't do it a second place, try it a third place. If you can't do it a third place, you can email us and I'll tell you how to do it. This one is from Ladybug E. Five stars, always ready. I've been listening to this podcast for a year and I'm always ready for more. I appreciate hearing the stories from the perspective of the ladies. I love the shout out to the HBCUs and random burst out in song. Ladies, thank you for the giggles and the storytelling. I shall continue to listen and put others on. I just love the entire formula. Take that ish to trial. I'm not black. Parole or no parole. Keep doing it for the culture, y'all. Thank you. This one says, hello, my loves. First of all, thank you both for sharing your light with us. You two remind me of my own friendship with my best friend. The laughter constantly breaking into song and the personal similarities with blatant differences. I am also an only child who grew up with a strict mom, so I relate a lot to Mara's tangents about her childhood. My favorite parts are the little rascal reference and take that shit to trial. I pray you guys continue to prosper together and individually. Thank you again for this podcast. Oh, that was so sweet. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. If you want to keep up with us, you can. You can follow us on Twitter, Sisters Who Kill. You can follow us on Instagram, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. On TikTok, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. You can follow us on our public Facebook page, Sisters Who Kill Podcast, and our private discussion page. You must answer the questions to get in. Anything else, friend? Talk to us. We talk back. Bye.